time of Reagan and before the rise of Seagal, Snipes, and Van Damme, there was an age undreamed of. Unto this land came Arnold the Austrian. He was a barbarian, a demigod, a killer robot from the future, and he was destined to wear the crown of Hollywood upon a troubled brow. It is only his chroniclers, Mike Gillis and Casey Doran, who can tell you of his legend. This is his saga. Podcast de la Vista, baby. You know what, Mike? Can we call this an extended cameo? I, I, he's still top build. That's 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 what counts. This he's, is the second time this has happened. He still is an, on the cover. Is five times larger than the actual lead of the movie. Yeah. So of course we are talking about 1985's Red Sonia, which is the third Arnold movie in the Hyborian Age, directed by Richard Fleischer, who we knew previously from Conan the Destroyer, mm-hmm. as well as. My God, this is a crazy career going all the way back to the 1940s, but he did Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Fantastic Voyage, Dr. Doolittle, Soylent Green. Yep, yep. And uh, this was a screenplay that was co-written by Clive Exton, who, as far as I can tell, wrote a ton for the BBC, including Agatha Christie's Poirot and a ton of Jeeves and Woosters, which is an awesome series. Yeah, it is. And uh, co-writer uh, George McDonald Fraser, who Octopussy, yeah, Octopussy, and uh, the something. two um, Salkinds, uh, Three Musketeers movies, right, right. So there's there's a lot going in here. That's, a lot of big... that's a strange mix, I think, for a sort of a B movie sword and sandals Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle. Yeah, there's a lot of <laughs> weird pieces going together in this one, and of course, uh, we never have a podcast guest on unless they can defeat us in a fair fight. Yeah. <laughs> so we are welcoming on uh, for the first time on this show. Mr. Tobias Panshin, who is one of the co-hosts of View from the Gutters, the comic book podcast. Welcome aboard, Mr. Tobias Panshin. I would say thank you for having me, but I had to lick you both at the same time to be here, so I kind of feel like you should be thanking me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for the viewers at home, the listeners at home don't know, but Tobias is on our plaque, our dedication plaque for the studio, and he's he's number two. It's not alphabetical. I think it's by, I think it's by importance, I think. And yeah. Tobias, you are in spot number two. Excellent, yeah. as yes. I should be in all things. <laughs> so you are responsible for helping us figure out how to create our own studio in this basement, uh, known as Valverde now. So uh, oh, thank excellent. you. Yeah, thank you for all the help that you gave us with that. Well, you're very welcome. So, uh, Tobias, this is your first time on this show. Yes. And uh, one of the things we always like to ask people uh, when they come on Podcast of La Vista Baby for the first time, is what is your history with the movies of Arnold Schwarzenegger, and are you a fan of the guy? Oh, man. Um, um I'm going to answer the second question first. I would say yes, I am generally a fan of Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I would say that my primary history with Arnold Schwarzenegger is uh, a little film of his that I watched basically just on repeat throughout most of my childhood called Red Sonia. Oh my God. <laughs> oh wow. Oh my God. Um, my, uh, my father. This was uh, the first Arnold movie you saw. Yeah. Okay. I, well, I first or possibly second, as I was yeah. about to say, um, when I was a kid, my father had uh, a VCR back in the era when those were relatively rare mm-hmm. and he loved taping things off of TV. And we had just this entire bookcase full of home recorded VHS tapes. And one of them was Conan the Destroyer and Red Sonia back to back. Double feature, Double baby. feature. I did not see Conan the Barbarian <laughs> until, honestly, I want to say about a year ago. That's probably the right age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 36 is the right era for uh, Conan the Barbarian. You're just old enough to be able to handle it. But Destroyer and Red Sonia, I watched, honestly, over and over and over again. Uh, oh, and that wow. was my main introduction to Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't know that I saw another movie of his until I was probably a teenager when I started getting into like, um, oh God, of course, now immediately my main, my brain is going blank. Uh, Total Recall. Oh, the yeah, I'm there's for. a classic. Yeah. Yeah. And like, but I didn't get into that until I was much, much older. Like these two films throughout my childhood were the Arnold vehicles that I watched. Oh, wow. So with that in mind, uh, Tobias, if you had to sum up the, you know, synopsize in a paragraph or two, 
what is Red Sonia about? All right. I, I wrote this down. I wanted oh, to come prepared. Yes. Please. So Red Sonia. You're spitting written. Is a, yeah. is a film about a gay queen, Gedrin, who's just trying to chill and get a dope disco ball for her party castle. Uh, but unfortunately, a straight pride rally joins forces with the world's most entitled trust fund baby, and they show up at the party castle to wreck up the place, <laughs> kill the house wizard slash DJ, and then throw both Gedrin and the disco ball into lava. And then the straight people kiss while pretending to do that freeze frame thing while the other <laughs> characters get bored and wander off. Yeah. The end. Yeah, it's uh, beautiful. <laughs> yeah, that that about sums it up. Yeah, this is a this is a strange movie. Um, it it opens in a really really weird way. You mean murder and rape within the first two minutes? But not just murder and rape in the first two minutes. That's pretty standard for what you essentially have as a revenge movie. But it's edited really oddly. Like it opens up with a text crawl that says, you know, in the Hyborian age of violence, no, you know, no. she it was. It says the Hyborian kingdom, which, Hyborian I think, kingdom. which is a misnomer, I think. It is. Yeah. The Hyborian age is, it's like saying the ice age. It's not the ice kingdom, unless it right. is the ice kingdom. <laughs> but, um, it, it talks, you know, that the sort of way you lead into one of these movies to give it that sort of epic feel, which is that you have sort of misty hills in the background and sometimes you put, you know, James Earl Jones narrating on top of it, but this time it was just, you know, drums and the, the text going up. And um, immediately you cut from that into a narrated series of flashbacks, which to me led me to believe, and it just stank of fixed in post. Yeah. That there was a bunch of material that probably got in an R rating that they went, yeah, we can't do that. Because this is the weird thing with this movie is that, of course, it's directed by somebody who did, um, you know, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and has that kind of big, epic, you know, Sinbad, uh, Clash of the Titans kind of feel to it. But has an origin story for a character that is way grittier and darker and really kind of antithetical to a lot of what you're going. So Red Sonia is somebody who turns down the advances of a queen who... They, not just that, but she's disgusted by her, um, slashes her face, um, and in retaliation for this, the evil queen murders her family, burns her house, has her raped by soldiers, and left for dead. And I, this is the weird part, is that I know from the comic book, because she's based on a Marvel character that's based on a Robert E. Howard character, that, you know, in vengeance, she calls to the gods, and this goddess comes down and gives her terrible strength to wreck her vengeance and stuff. But um, the the movie doesn't show that really well. We just go from her outside of her burning house and the goddess, ghost, whatever lady. Obi-Wan. Uh, the Obi-Wan, <laughs> yeah. fairy godmother, whatever, just right. appears to her. And then ghost explains to her all of the events that she just experienced. Well, you, you say that this is the problem with the movie, but I think it's this is one of many problems with this movie. And I, I, I watched this with, uh, my, my good friend and co-host Joe Preddy. Um, we watched it together and I quipped to him as we were watching this, watching the house burn down. Like, oh, there goes all their budget. Yeah. <laughs> like they spent all of it on this house, which they then burned to the ground. And there were scenes throughout this where I was like, okay, well, you know, clearly you had a budget, but then you kind of just half asked this entirely. I actually and felt like, differently about well, it. Like I got to the end yeah. of the movie and I was like, okay, clearly they had some really great ideas and mm -hmm. no budget to see them through. And then I looked it up. They had $18 million yeah. to make this movie, which is as much of a budget as Conan the Destroyer or uh, Conan the Barbarian and like three times as much as the Terminator. Mm-hmm. And so the the thing that I was left with, the only explanation that I have that I can come up with, it was why this movie is the way that it is, is it's got to be production issues. There had to have been production well, problems throughout this. I mean, unlike Destroyer, where, uh, you know, the Barbarian was filmed in various parts around Europe to get that sort of ancient land feel. Um, whereas Destroyer was filmed in like Mexico and you could kind of, we talked about how you could see you the can, difference. You can feel like you're in the Americas. So this, this one, however, was filmed in Rome and, and, in Italy and around there. So at least it has an old world type of feel to it. But yeah, you definitely get the sense of like, where is the money going for this? Cause it looks not that much better than 
Destroyer does, and Destroyer looked like a terrible B movie. I think I'm I'm grading this on a different curve than you guys because I kind of love the way this movie looked. Um because I'm not comparing it to the sort of big budget, you know, movies that we saw. I'm not comparing it to like the never ending story. I'm not comparing it to Labyrinth. I'm not comparing it to the Dark Crystal. I'm comparing it to like Beastmaster and yeah. Masters of the Universe. And, um, I'm comparing it to a lot of those 1980s sword and sandal things, usually starring someone like Reb Brown the, running the, around the California desert. The one that I always equated it the most to, because I also had this on tape, was Crawl. Yeah. yeah. And compared to Crawl, this looks like it was made on like a handy cam in somebody's backyard. <laughs> See, that, 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 this is the part that I get with it is I think there are parts of this movie that look amazing. Yes. There, yes. there are, I think that filming in Italy was a good move. That Italy, you get the sense of this is not something, whether the plants and animals and the rocks and trees are not something that look exactly like something I'm used to seeing in the Americas. Like you can sort of feel when something is shot in Vancouver or in the hills of California. You can sort of just tell. Mm -hmm. And it takes something that's supposed to feel like it's a misty ancient time and it makes it feel weirdly anachronistic. I don't really get that with this movie. It The... The, when you see, you know, Lord Calador, that's Arnold's character riding across this like lengthy field and there's like misty mountains in the background, these rocky hills. It really feels like an ancient time. It feels like a different place. It doesn't feel like this is a bunch of actors running around a set. It, it looks great. And there are moments where like when he finds the, the dying priestess and takes her to this, what appears to be like a series of broken, like a uh, bull statue that are left in maybe from a civilization that's long dead and she's sort of resting in the shade under there that all looks great yeah that I, looks amazing there are parts of the interior of the castle that look amazing yeah and this is the part that gets me is that 90 percent of the time i'm going okay this looks good this looks good and then you get a shot that takes you out of it like when the priestess who survives that's uh red sonia's sister escapes uh with the news of queen gedron stealing the the talisman the orb um she escapes on the zip line uh and gets shot in the back and then calador finds her at the bottom and um Suddenly it looks like they're in the, the, the hills around California. That one shot looks so cheap all of a sudden. It doesn't look like that ancient old world sort of feel. It looks like you're in the middle of, you know, Deathstalker and the Warriors from Hell. <laughs> it, it looks cheap Tor all of a sudden. Hunter from the future. Tor, your, your Hunter from the future. Yeah. It feels, it yeah. feels really cheap all of a sudden. It feels like direct to video in that moment. And there's another shot like that too in Queen Gedron's castle where you're walking down this hallway. And the hallway has some guards on the edge and there's some things hanging on the walls and maybe a torch or two. And it looks so cheap yeah. and it looks like a Roger Corman movie or something. Yeah. Like a yeah. Roger Corman movie. The walls look that sort of like pebbled, uh, concrete that you have in like a school gymnasium painted red. And then those characters in that exact same shot turn a corner into an amazing looking throne room. Yeah. Oh, the best throne room. <laughs> and it looks amazing in there. The, I mean, there's the a Conan movies have always done well with having pretty awesome ornate throne rooms. Even with Destroyer, I think they spent, they tend to spend the most money set building money on making at least one really, really large high ceiling room that has some pretty decent set design. Yeah. The, the two things that I will grant this movie that it did amazingly well is the set design. And the costume design. Costumes yeah. are amazing. I, I yeah. gave it crap at the beginning because I was calling it the land of silly hats because everybody has a silly hat. Yes. Yep. But those silly hats get progressively more and more amazing the more of them that you see. Yeah. And Gedrin has at least two, if not three, costume changes through this movie, mm -hmm. all of which are fabulous. Because, I do not know yeah. why there are not a thousand Queen Gedrin cosplayers. Th this is the, the De Laurentiis touch, though, yes. here, is that they are great at making – I mean, say what you will about Italian movies about – uh, having actors from all over the world in a, is smashing them in a movie, making them redub all of their dialogue. One thing that that the sort of Italian cinema connection is is that like they've got a a thing about having amazing costume designers, having great set designers, and making it look like you're in a different place. Yeah, it certainly the, does. Yeah. And a score by Ennio Morricone from The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. Yes. Yeah. This, I mean, how can you is, say no to that? Yeah. I I think this this I could make an argument where I think uh. This might be the best scored Arnold movie, maybe f rivaling Brad Fidel with uh, Terminator 2. Uh, 
I don't know. This was a great, I like the score to this one. It doesn't have the big bombastic theme that Conan the Destroyer has. I love the theme of that movie, but the rest of the score is pretty, meh, it's okay. Yeah. It's not as good as Conan the Barbarian, but I really like this score. It's not as good score. as Commando. <laughs> yeah, Commando is, is a whole we, category of its own. Stay tuned for that. But, I, I, I can't say that the music had a huge impact on me, but this movie did remind me weirdly in a lot of ways of another De Laurentiis film. Flash Gordon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. With yeah. just the costume designs and the sets and the throne room and everything's like super glam. I think that's why I don't get down on things looking like a set sometimes in this because – and again, like I talked about, that sort of 80s, you know, that 80s directive DVD – no, it wasn't even DVD. It was <laughs> video back then. Jesus Christ. Uh, directive video style uh, movies with a nobody – uh, usually running around California hills, uh, with some lady who might have been in Playboy once, and then they battle a monster and a guy in a rubber suit and all that stuff. Uh, and it's so cheap. It always looks so cheap. Beastmaster, um, you know, those sorts of movies, Deathstalker. And what I kind of love about this is it's, it's upscale from that. Obviously, Arnold is present. There are people that you know. Ennio Morricone is involved. There's, there's an actual pedigree here, but, like with 80s slasher movies, I don't really need them to be really good to be enjoyable. It's not a necess- it's not a necessary part of the formula to be a good version of this. Um, I just, it's comfort food. It's like macaroni and cheese. It's like, uh, mashed potatoes and gravy. There's just something about it that I just kind of slide into and it's comfortable. So I think sadly, uh, and this is, I hope I'm not disparaging Bridget Nelson as an actor because obviously she went on to do a lot more than this. This was her first role. She was discovered as a 20 year old Danish model and this was her first movie. Um, is that maybe this through line for this movie is looks nice, but the rest of it is nah, you know, like Bridget Nelson is an am- amazingly beautiful. And I think, I mean, I don't, I didn't read the comic books. I think maybe she made a good, version of a red sonia but her acting is not amazing you know but i mean how is that any different from arnold at this point yeah, in his career? This i mean that's really, what i'm saying looks nice but the rest of it is uh... i mean there's maybe two real actors in the main cast three if you include falcon but most of our leads bridget nelson never acted before arnold still in his early days and uh the kid who's the actor Ernie Reyes is, Jr. Yeah. yeah. Um you might recognize him as the Kano the, from Ninja Turtles. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh yeah, went on to be a much better actor as he grew up, but here, you know, he's still a kid who mostly just goes aya 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 <laughs> and that is the extent of his acting. But I got to say that is an am- I I'll say this before that is amazing fight choreography for somebody who's as young as he is. Yeah, he clearly knows martial arts even at that age. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think I I have to agree with Mike on this one. You know, at, in the very first scene when King or excuse me, Queen Gedrin's forces are attacking the priestesses to take the talisman, she wants to test out what she had heard, which is that only women can touch it. So she has one of her male so- soldiers walk up and touch the talisman. And he starts to get that like 80s filter effect where he starts turning green and then he doesn't like dissolve or explode or anything. It's just a smash cut to him not being there. Yeah. Like they paused the camera, he walked away and they started the camera again. Yeah. It's basically the way that a red shirt would die on Star Trek. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, yep. and so you know from that moment in the first five minutes of the film, like, okay, it's that kind of movie. Yeah. But that is not the thing. That you're taking from this movie. It's not the acting. It's not even necessarily the story, but it's just, it's a fun time. It's ridiculous and campy and over the top. And it's got these crazy sets and it's got these crazy characters. You know, I mentioned the DJ wizard mm-hmm. who is this like character who has like no <laughs> lines. He's just in her throne room and he's got like a giant DJ table filled with like bubbling things and things of weird color and mysterious implements. And like the only thing that he does throughout this movie is roll out a giant mirror that has a naked belly dancing girl on it. Oh no, that's when he left his porn tape in the VCR. Yeah, that's what I took right. out of it too. That yeah. that was his browsing history. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like he, he left his Pornhub window open, and he has to like very quickly close that so that they can scry on Red Sonia and her team. Like that character does nothing in this movie. They could very easily have not had him. 
Yeah. But it just makes the film better because of how crazy he looks and the fact that he exists in this world. And just the system of magic he seems to use, which is this elaborate Rube Goldberg chemistry set that attaches itself to a magic mirror, occasionally scrapes a knife across it, and he's like cutting Red Sonia from across the room. And when she realizes what to do, she just goes over there and lops his fucking head off. Yeah. Uh, but I just kind of love that he's just this weird dude who has this very specific skill, and he just got a gig. But I, again, I just, I love how it's not the typical Harry Potter type wizard skills where I've memorized a bunch of, of uh, incantations and gestures, which together let me do effects. No, I need this huge apparatus to do these magical effects. And it's this strange, like kind of ritual and it's almost steampunk looking the stuff that he has. And it's just so weird that they normally, when you have a wizard in a movie, you don't do that. You just have them shoot fire out of their hands. And I love how weird it is. And it's, it's like, this is a sort of job that would attract a weird guy. <laughs> the guy who has to like pour a bunch of things into a vial and boil it with his hand, with his hand, uh, before that he can create some sort of magical effect across the room. And the minute you just charge at him, he's fucked. <laughs> yeah. And Queen, uh, Queen Gedrin, when she first walks into her throne room, just kneels down and pets her giant spider that's like the size <laughs> of like a corgi. Yeah. And it purrs at her. <laughs> yeah. And that never comes up again. There's no point that anybody has to fight that spider. Like that is just there to affect. I love it because it's a special effect that they could have cut out of the movie, but they didn't because it, it gives the world this kind of this kind of depth and weirdness that she has a pet and it just happens to be this like this dog sized tarantula. And yeah, like I, like I understand that this is the eighties and we're supposed to take the fact that she's a lesbian to indicate that she is pure unadulterated evil. Right. And she has this like sexy concubine who's, at her side at all times and has no spoken dialogue or maybe she has a line yeah she's there to lure um prince tarn into the room at the end so that's that she right could be, so he could be taken hostage but like everything about her party castle like from the moment that we <laughs> see her in the room full of candles on i liked her more and more i and i ended this movie thinking like she is the best character she is clearly who this movie should be about. Yeah. So I we were kind of we're skipping over really quickly. So the beginning of the movie after Red Sonia's origin is okay. We've got the talisman of something. I don't know if they, they name it. It's just the, the talisman. talisman. Yeah. And it's it is the glowing green disco ball that um, these priestesses that are that are charged with protecting it are now going to have to destroy because it's like Superman. It gets it gets more powerful with the sun, and it's got too powerful, and... They can't control it anymore, yeah. and it can make worlds and break worlds. Yeah. So, unfortunately, the same thing that I had said about Conan the Destroyer is true here, which is, like, world-ending stakes for the kind of Harborian Age stories are stupid. The best ones are the kind when, if Conan wasn't here, you know, if Conan wasn't, or a Kalidor, I suppose, in this instance, um, wasn't here, like, oh, well, this evil guys would probably get away with it and some innocent people would die or whatever, but the world's still going to be around. I kind of, I kind of chafes. It's the laziest type of writing to be like, oh, it's a world-ending you know, MacGuffin. But okay. that's always been the thing with a lot of Conan stories is that frequently they aren't about the end of the world. It's not the Lord of the Rings that uh, Conan will be a thief in one story and he might encounter some ancient evil, but he can run away from it. He doesn't have to defeat it. Uh, the same thing that in the original Conan, the barbarian movie, there's this evil death cult run by James Earl Jones, but you could just escape and just go beyond the reach of this cult and it's dangerous to all the people within its reach, but it's not like there's a you know blue beam going into the sky and he's going to destroy <laughs> it, which was kind of the case with Conan the Destroyer and with Red Sonia, which is that you have – in Conan the Destroyer, I think they were trying to awake a world-destroying god and to try to harness its power. In this one, it's, it's this orb, which is implied – at least the priestesses believe – that it was used by this god to create the world. 
And I guess just after he was done, he just left it there. Um, what I do <laughs> it fell love. fell out of his back pocket, I think. Yeah, he just went, yeah, I don't care. Whatever. Um, I guess it is, a, I mean, it'll destroy the world and everything will break up, but I guess it would, if, if they just left it to its own devices, it would have fallen into that lava eventually anyways. Right. Exactly. So like, like, as much as they say like, oh, it'll destroy the world. It's like, well, really, it's going to take care of itself eventually. Eventually. But what I kind of like is that the priestesses that have been charged with guarding this, this artifact, who knows for how many thousands of years um, aren't the kind of priestesses that we're used to seeing in these movies, which most of the time is just a bunch of like elderly people in robes who are like, oh, no, you don't know with what you touch, you know, <laughs> and then they just get stabbed without a fight. Um, these priestesses um, do the smart thing for people who are destroying, you know, have a world destroying, world threatening artifact in their care, which is that they're all wielding swords and are all ready to fight. So when the soldiers get in, there's like a fucking battle royale. Oh yeah, and they are wearing the scantiliest of armor. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's and weird little time lord hats. <laughs> they do have time lord hats, and so do the soldiers fighting them. Except the the soldiers fighting them are all in black and have skulls on there. And as uh, was it Mitchell would Webb say, that's how you know they're the baddies. <laughs> Absolutely, and the. The, uh, the evil German from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. yes the, who the, is the best yeah. actor in this movie. And yeah. This, that's the guy yes. who played, uh, what was it, like uh, Tote in yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's the Nazi who gets his face melted, who hits the amulet. Burned melted. into his hand. Yeah. Yes. That's the guy. There's actually a lot of people from Raiders in this movie. Uh, Brytag. The, uh, That's the, Pat, Pat Roach. Pat Roach, the, yep. the guy who, um, is guarding the gate and that they have to fight their way through all of his soldiers. And he's like, I am Brightag. That, that is the big bald Nazi that Indiana Jones fights at the end of Raiders. Oh, mm-hmm. dang. Mm-hmm. He also played the wizard slash dragon man from Conan the Destroyer. Mm-hmm. And then finally, um, the guy, um, I don't, I forget what his name is. I think Jart. D-J-A-R-T, uh, the thief that is accosting Prince Tarn um, and trying to draw and quarter him oh, when Sonia yeah. shows up and rescues him. That guy, that is the swordsman from Cairo that Indiana Jones shoots. Whoa. That's awesome. Yeah. So there's a lot of raiders here. And I was like, it made me go, wait, is this filmed at Pinewood? Because <laughs> it has that kind of vibe. That's there's, there's a practical reason why everyone in the, the Empire is British. It's, you know, that's the actors you're going to get. But um, there's a lot of a lot of raiders people in this movie who just show up, get a couple scenes, get to be kind of crazy because the Brytag character – um, even though he's played by Pat Roach, is very Brian Blessedy. He yeah. is. Yeah. He's got that big bushy beard. He's constantly proclaiming things. But, I mean, this is the kind of, um, you know, fa- epic fantasy movie that hits all the big beats, which is you have fights with soldiers, fight with a warlord, fight with a monster, fight with a wizard, fight with a monarch. You got to hit all your things. And then mm. you get to throw mm. a, a mystical artifact into lava. <laughs> that that is the formula in gotta, a nutshell there's you forgot to say that it is also like uh like raiders in that the talisman is basically the ark of the covenant right? yeah i mean it's just, you touch it and you die sort of thing yeah, yeah it has that kind of vibe about it um but i i just do kind of enjoy these these sorts of stories i don't expect them to be shakespeare um, and I, we've said this before, Casey, when we were talking about the the last movie that we did on this show, which was Sabotage. I, in a weird sort of way, that that name of that movie was weirdly prescient because I think that's what it did to the grading curve of how oh, yeah. I judge Arnold movies. <laughs> that uh, you can probably ask uh, Joe Pretty about this, but that movie was so bad that. I almost can't hate anything that follows no, it. It's it it for being a. For, I mean, this is certainly. I can't. I think I was telling you before, Mike, that if you were to sort of separate Arnold's movies into the top half, which are good, and the bottom half that are bad, this one is pretty close to the middle. I can't tell if it's. I can't tell if it's at the top of the bad or the bottom of the good, but it's pretty close to the middle. It has things about it that you expect from a good Arnold movie, and things that are great about the Conan series in general. I I will say for the record, sabotage is so bad that it is now Joe Pretty's official marker for whether things are bad if they're as bad or worse than sabotage because it's so like he will not stop talking about how bad that movie is like, that is his barometer now. i'm gonna feel i feel sorry and i've now every time i've seen him since i've apologized for yes. making him watch it yeah it, it's bad and i can say this about <laughs> sabotage over the last couple of months i'm getting cancer treatment and i had one of my testicles surgically removed that was not as bad as sabotage <laughs> 
Um, but <laughs> the, 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 the thing that's so interesting about this to me is that apparently Arnold had a contract with De Laurentiis to do more movies and he felt so ill used being in this movie that he canceled his contract and did not work with him. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, well, I mean, I think, I think there was a, I think I've read the, there's like a, 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 two pages of mentions in his autobiography about it. And it's basically, he felt pretty stung after Conan the Destroyer because it wasn't great. Although it made a lot of money. It made more money than the first Conan did. He, he felt and Maria Shriver felt at the time that she, they were like, this was bad. You shouldn't do it anymore. And I think Dino De Laurentiis kind of conned him into it by being like, but it could just be a cameo, right? And then kind of got him over there, and then he was there for like four weeks. Yeah, that even though they say it's a cameo, it's not a cameo. He has yeah. as much screen time as a lot of the main characters. Well, and they give him top billing. Yeah, yeah, he's all over the poster. He's all over the opening credits that he's the first name you get. Like you said, this is exactly like uh, Batman and Robin, where even though he's not the title lead character, his his name comes up first in the credits because obviously he's the big name and it meant a lot more from them back then. I mean, this is just after the Terminator. This movie came out the very year yeah, later. So the, he was filming this while I think Terminator was in post-production. Okay. So, so because in his autobiography, it follows that the next thing he talks about was um, early test screenings of Terminator and then the release of, of Terminator. So I think he filmed this in 84. Okay, so yeah. that, that's the interesting thing with this is that so we have uh, a career that's at a crossroads that Arnold was somebody who could have done muscle man roles forever. But I think one of the things that makes Arnold kind of special is that there's a thousand muscle guys that appear in a lot of these movies that they put a sword in their hand and say, OK, you're going to fight the big rubber monster now. And a lot of those guys just stay there. I mean, because there's there's not this quality that makes them a star. Arnold is different that even though this is very early Arnold, you can see that there's a screen presence there. There's a charisma there. There's something that makes him eminently watchable. And considering that he's dealing with Dino De Laurentiis, giving him, you know, a line of shit and basically sort of implying, Hey, you want to be in movies like this forever. And he just finished Terminator and said, no, I feel that that path over there is going to offer me a fuck ton more than you can give me in things filmed in Italy and probably, you know, paying me a tenth as much. I'm going to be a fucking star. I I can feel it already. And he was right. I think that that is the thing with Arnold that makes him sort of different is a lot of people, if they say, but this movie made a lot of money, that's still not satisfying to Arnold because he wants something out of it other than money. He can reach down and pick up money anytime he wants. He's at this point in his career after Terminator, he's doing pretty fucking well. Um, He's an actor that actually has an artistic requirement for the things that he does. And there's a lot of people in his position that wouldn't have it. that would just kind of get on the money train let it carry him as far as it can go and would have been happy with that. But I think that Arnold's ambitious and you kind of see that where he's just like, I could be in these kind of, you know, clash of the Titans type movies forever, but I'm going to remake the action genre instead. And I, I like these directors better. Once I work with uh, someone like James Cameron, why would I want to go back? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that that really puts puts a pin in it when you put him up against somebody like Dolph Lundgren, who is he was in Beastmaster, wasn't he? Or no. am, I, am I confusing him? I know he was, he was Master, in Masters of the Universe. Masters Master, of the Universe. Well, that was his first movie. He was in Rocky Four. He was, but he he does not have the level of on screen charisma that Arnold does. Like mm-hmm. even in this film, where he honestly isn't given that much to do. He still manages to do it and make you really like him with a really not all that role. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's always been a a twinkle in Arnold's eye. And we've talked about this a lot that even when he's doing terrible violence to bad guys, there's this smile in his face and it, it might not be on his mouth, but it's in his eyes that lets you know this is fun. We're going to have fun. We're having fun right now and it's okay (laughs) to enjoy me, you know, popping this guy's head off and then spouting a pun. It's like, this is fun because I'm having fun and I want you to have fun too. And Dolph Lundgren never really had that, that when you watch Masters of the Universe, I mean, both of them struggle with English not being their first language. Both of them went into it not primarily being an actor. By the way, Dolph Lundgren is like a 
biochemist or something. He went to like MIT. Yeah, he's not a dumb guy. No, but he's he's not somebody that has that same star quality about him. He's a, an amazing physical specimen who also has an accent, but that's kind of where the similarity ends. Yeah, I mean, I could I could see Dolph Lundgren being in Red Sonia in Arnold's place. I could not see him taking Arnold's place in, let's say, Predator. Exactly. No, it just no. would not have worked. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see, you know, just what was different about this guy and how many things were working against Arnold when he has a semi unpronounceable name and, uh, he has an accent that I don't think at this point in his career, people realized was actually a good thing that helped market him and made catchphrases sound better. Um, so he's kind of, it, this is like, this is like Arnold begins. We're like right at the, the beginning of, of them figuring it out and Arnold figuring out what he's worth. So, uh, well, speaking of what Arnold's doing in this movie, uh, you can see that this there is a continuity between Conan the Barbarian and Conan the Destroyer, but he's not playing Conan in this movie. As much as you, if you just saw the 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 poster, you would think, oh, he's just it's Conan with a different outfit on. He's got a, a lot, a little more clothes. Instead, he's I think he's just a total. This is a total invention by the screenwriters. I don't. You could tell me, Mike, if this ended ended up in any of the Marvel comics or any as far of the Red as I can tell, comics. This is, he's created for the movie. Um, and he's Lord Calador. I think you don't know he's a High Lord. Uh, of the, Hercania. At the beginning. Hercania. Mm-hmm. Is that is that an actual also an actual Robert E. Howard place or just, yes, it is. Okay. Okay. Um, but the thing is, is I think he is just, he's not just Con- like the traveling name of Conan because he's a lot more magnanimous than, than Conan would ever be. He's a lot more heroic. Yeah. It's so, it's, it's, it's not the same character. He's, he's a bit more dashing. He's somebody who's a lot more flirtatious where Conan is a bit more of a blunt object. He's smart and, but he's still a wild animal who's interacting with, people in cities where Calador is much more of a cultured guy who's the lord of a city state. Right, right. And that's I mean he dresses a lot better than Conan. Well, and and Calador's main reason for doing this whole thing is that he is is abiding by this honor system, this obligation that he basically has to protect the talisman. Um and I don't think you can map that to anything Conan has at all. Well, not only that, but he says specifically that he didn't reveal who he truly was to Sonia at the beginning, nor did he try and like press himself upon her as a traveling companion because he knew that that wasn't what she needed or what she would accept at the time. Like right. he shows a certain level of humility mm-hmm. and and a willingness to allow things to happen without himself necessarily being directly involved that i don't th- think that conan could do no no i th- i think that i mean obviously he's a lot more altruistic he has a goal for him the goal is destroying the talisman and he knows as a dude he can't touch it so he needs sonia as part of this quest and he's happy to follow at a distance and just kind of keep keep a low profile and then just jump in and help whenever he is needed and doesn't really reveal himself until he's needed. There's several situations that he clearly just trusts her to be able to resolve it. Uh, and in a weird sort of way, he's like Racer X from uh, Speed Racer. <laughs> yeah. Where he just pops in and <laughs> when he's needed. Um, but I, I kind of enjoy that about it. He's definitely not Conan, but I maybe could see where they might have wanted him to be Conan because there's a lot of money in him being Conan. But I think it's a lot more interesting to see him stretch his legs. I think Arnold probably enjoyed playing something different. Because, I mean, in the end, he's still doing the same things that Conan would do. The words are the words on the uh, and the dialogue are slightly different, but he's riding on horses. He's kicking ass. He's holding gates, heavy wrought iron gates open with his pure strength. You know, like it's that's that is his his function is approximately the same for Arnold playing him as an actor. It's just the nouns and verbs and adjectives around him that are slightly different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um I I want to say that I actually really also enjoyed uh the side characters in this that there's a couple of characters there's Prince Tarn of Hoblock of Hoblock and uh his servant slash uh sidekick Falcon who's kind of also his adult companion. Now, Ernie Reyes Jr. was 13 years old when he made this, but he looks like he's nine. Yeah, he, d- he does not look 13. He's, he's a tiny guy, and he's sort of a little Veruca Salt who's always bossing his servant around. Um, his servant, by the way, is played by Paul Smith, who played Bluto in the Robert Altman Popeye. 
And he played the Beast <laughs> Raban in uh, Dune. Yes, he did. Yes. I so I was like, I gotta place that face. Who is that face? He oh my usually, god, it's Raban. It's because he's clean shaven in this movie. Yeah. You're used to him having a beard. Well, he, he looked to me like he should be like some kind of greasy Italian cop from Chicago who's constantly <laughs> ha- like half tucked into a plate of spaghetti. <laughs> I I I think he might be close to me. My favorite character in this movie. Um, I love that he's sort of long suffering, but he seems to be genuinely cares about this kid that he's in charge of. And he'll eat some shit from this kid who's just like, you fool. What you, you can tell that because he has this like giant bone club at his, <laughs> uh, hip throughout yeah. the entire movie. It's made out of a femur. Yeah. Which is great. <laughs> it's a great weapon. I love that look for him. Yeah. But then like towards the end of the movie, he like opens up his jacket and pulls out a much smaller bone <laughs> club from inside his jacket which is clearly the one that he really cares about. And he gives that to the prince to help defend himself. Mm-hmm. And I, what I love is that these are the sort of characters that in a lot of these movies, it would have made them really annoying, especially the prince. I I think it was, I think, yes, I think it was, is it Paul Smith? Is that what his name is? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was his performance. And there's actually a lot of nonverbal performance that makes his character that much more interesting because he... Of course, is not going to, he doesn't talk back because he's respectful, but he will, he will just make winks and nods and looks with his face and sort of let you know, like, okay, well, this is the way it's got to be. Sometimes he flashes a look back at Red Sonia to say, okay, what, what are we going to do here? You know, forget about it. That sort of thing. Yeah. And that's part of his thing is he's just sort of like, I'm absorbing all these things, but you can tell what's going on here based on my mean, you know? But he's also smart in ways that he doesn't make apparent to the kid. Like, lets the kid continue to think he's in charge, but he's obviously steering it in little ways and drops little things out there that the kid grabs onto and, and he's sort of like teaching him and steering him that he is the adult supervision pretending to be his servant. And I wonder if this is what little Bruce Wayne and Alfred were like at one point. <laughs> but, um, I, I kind of love that, that, uh, he's also, like at the end, I forget who it was that, um, I think he was the one who said someone has to wait outside. Yeah. And really what he's oh, no. doing. Oh, no, he didn't. He, he gave a look. He gave a look to Red Sonia. And then she said it. Yes. Oh, yep. so, I mean, it's still his yep. idea, this idea that yep. we're about to go into Queen Gedron's castle and that is not a safe place for this little kid to go, regardless of the fact that he knows how to fence and knows martial arts. It's not, it's going to be dangerous. So we have to give him something that protects his ego so that we don't have to fight with him being out here, which is the idea that, you know, feeding the notion that it's, this is the most dangerous job is to guard the front door. And he actually does get to do something. And a lot of movies would have made him useless or it would have made him a coward, like a Joffrey type, but it doesn't. I mean, he is actually useful in a fight. And um he really is trying to be this like gallant hero prince. He's just a little kid. Well, I, th- I think that on top of that, you know, you really get the sense that he is trying to act the prince throughout this entire movie. He talks a lot about a prince does this, a prince does that. And you kind of get the sense that maybe he has not had the best role models in Hablock, that he is trying to live up to an ideal that was impressed upon him by, you know, parents or perhaps an older sibling. And that in the destruction of his entire home city, like he's now left with Falcon and Falcon's like, you know, this kid was not ready to be a ruler or a prince. And now I have to kind of like very quickly try and shape him up so that he actually can rule over whatever's left, assuming that there are any refugees. And the prince is incredibly receptive when they try and tell him, like, a prince, you know, needs to do these things. Like, you need to have respect for people. You need to be a leader and guide people and protect people and all of these things. And, like, it's clear that the kid really wants to learn to be a good prince that I think separates him from a character like Joffrey, who is just a self-centered monster. Yeah. And there is a moment where uh, Sonia teaches him how to hold a sword because he's practicing and she's able to disarm him really easily. And you see him drop all the sort of pretense that he normally has where he talks like Prince Namor and just asks her nicely, can you teach me please how to fight and fence? And she gives him a couple lessons. And it's that moment where you see that little glimpse that I think a lot of movies would have left out of giving him that moment. They would have just focused on him being annoying. Yeah. 
And I think that's actually kind of, kind of welcome that I like the characters in this movie. Yeah. That, uh, they, there isn't this, there's an element where they seem like actual good people, which, um, is actually rare for a Hyborian age story, really. Um, and certainly because when you look with Conan, Conan is very amoral. He's not a, he's not like a psychopath, but there is an element of, this is a guy who does bad things sometimes. Sometimes he's a thief. Sometimes he's like, you know, robbing people's uh, carriages of, of goods. And, um, the Calador is a very different guy. And so is, so is Falcon. And so is Sonia. And I kind of like that. There is an element of altruism behind these characters that they are trying to save the day. Well, I think, uh, I agree with all of what you said, but unfortunately, um, the, the nexus of, of, the prince and Fal- and his manservant, they create, I think, what is for me the worst scene in the entire movie, which is they sort of are taking refuge from the storm created by the talisman. And he, uh, the prince sort of sneaks off and finds this ruby in his room that is flooded. I guess you're guessing from the storm and then, t- and then orders Falco to try to take it off. Um, this huge pearl, I guess it's a pearl, not yeah. a ruby. Um, and, he takes it off, and of course, it awakens an old evil, which I guess also sounds like a Hyborian, Hyborian age sort of thing. But this scene takes place where it unleashes a mechanical dragon, water dragon, I guess, and it's seven minutes long. Yeah, seven Hyborian minutes <laughs> of the basically. It could have been a, this could have been a two and a half minute scene. It could have been a four minute scene, for God's sakes. And I, I really did feel myself start to fall asleep. I'm like, this is an action scene, and I feel like I'm falling asleep during well, this part in the middle of the movie. It, it doesn't help that basically the whole thing about it being mechanical means that they can't do anything to hurt it. So mm-hmm. it's seven minutes of them failing to defeat this like <laughs> mechanical water creature that they obviously spent a lot of money on the head mm-hmm. and then the rest of the body is basically just a bunch of trash bags filmed <laughs> really close up so you can't tell yeah um and most of the time in this room it just goes in circles so when the prince gets caught on it and it's going around and around or when arnold uh, dives on it and is like wrestling it it just kind of looks fun to write it because they do it for too long um, that you're just, you're doing donuts in this room <laughs> and, um, it's just kind of bizarre, but it really isn't, it, it does kind of drag to a halt a little bit until Arnold shows up where he basically jumps off of the stairs in like this Jimmy Sucka splash and, <laughs> and just starts wrestling this water dragon <laughs> underwater and it's doing like alligator rolls and he's doing some of his signature. Ah! And it's, that's a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, you could have shaved a good three to five minutes off of the entire sequence. And, and it, and it really belies for me the fact that it was, they're trying to stretch out a lot of this to make that like 90 minute, 90 minute runtime. Yeah. It's like, it's like one hour, 28 minutes and it almost doesn't even make that, you know, there's not, there's perhaps enough for 65 minutes. Of, of something good. Like, for example, they are, uh, they're going across what I think was probably one of the better map paintings. They're going across the skeleton bridge. It's not a real bridge. It's like the carcass of a huge beast that is spanning across this land. And, uh, Sonya goes, I'm going to go test the bridge. And you have, you know, you see uh, there's a special effect involved with putting a tiny little image of Red Sonia crossing this bridge that is a matte painting. And then they do that like three times. And I'm like, they just had to make use of all the money they spent doing this, I guess. But you're like, come on, we get it. We totally get it. That said, it was really fucking cool looking. Yeah, it was, it was like, right. it looked like some giant dinosaur rhinoceros. And the fact that it looks like no animal that has ever existed that is clearly larger than anything that could exist. It's like a brachiosaur sized thing. I love that. I love little details like that. The little bits where it makes the world feel old because a lot of fantasy movies forget to do that. A lot of the really cheap ones forget to do that. Um, like Lord of the Rings, like in the, the fight at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, where they're just fighting amongst these ruins. I love shit like that because it makes me realize that, yeah, maybe this is in a far distant time, but there was a far distant time before even that. And I, I love little elements that make the world feel lived in. On that note, I also want to throw out there the entire scene at the beginning beginning where Sonia is training with the Grandmaster oh, yeah. in this like arena and it 
is clearly like the ruins of what was much, once much, uh, excuse me, it's in the ruins of what was once a much grander structure, as you can see from the, like the giant statues that litter the countryside, including the one that looks like he's just sitting on the toilet in the yeah. background, who I love. <laughs> and then, you know, this is an old man with this like giant flags coming out of his shoulders where and he the clearly, Queen Amidala wig. Yeah, yeah, not walk through any doorways that have ever existed. <laughs> and you just kind of, you kind of wonder like what is this entire training camp? Who is this guy? What are these ruins? And you do not get or need answers to any of that. Yeah. It's just a thing that's there. I I love that. I love that they don't explain it. I mean, it can only get worse by explaining it. It just it, letting it just be a thing and treating it like it's normal is, I think, the best thing you can do with this kind of fantasy story. Well, I mean, speaking of explaining, I mean, the the scene that follows right after the water dragon scene is they're sort of they've escaped and they're in the forest, and it's the um the like exposition dump slash love scene where it's basically they they get they need to get all the heavy lifting out of the way to clear off for the last, you know, 35 minutes of the movie that are basically just storming the castle and killing the bad guys. And the exposition dump is like, I'm Lord Kaladar. Here's what I'm here to do. My name's Red Sonia. I, you know, I can't sleep with a man unless he defeats me in combat. We're off. And that's it. And it's like, <laughs> dust our hands. We're done with our screenwriting. Like, we could just do the rest of the movie, string action scenes together and shit falling off the walls, you know. But I do kind of like that they give Kaladar a line where he just calls out how fucking weird it is that she has that oath. <laughs> and he's like, oh, so the only man that can have you is one who's tried to murder you? That's logic. Um, but yeah, it, it's pretty fucked up. It's a pretty fucked up part of the, the classic Red Sonia thing, which is, you know, Conan just gets it wet everywhere, but Red Sonia has to lose a fight. That's a little creepy. Well, the, the entire Red Sonia thing, like it is very mired in 1970s male ideas about what feminism is. That's true. Yeah. I, I feel like if you, if this movie would be redone today, I feel like the impulse would have been to make, um, would be to make Red Sonia basically a, an, an Amazon style lesbian, I think is probably what it would do. Would do they take that element of, I, I have this disgust of men because of this terrible thing that ended up happening to me. But in this movie, they weirdly do a thing which, uh, I, by our standards at the beginning is not great at all to have, an evil characteristic of the bad guy basically be their gay, which that's not cool. That at is all. not aged well. It's not. It's not great. But no. I, I. But I do feel like you could take the reading. Uh, one reading of Red Sonia is uh, is like, well, well, then she would choose just not to lay with men, and that's her life, and that's just something that makes her unique in this weird age where lots of crazy shit can happen. But this movie, of course, needs to make her a sex object, not only for us, but through Calador, which is a stand-in for the, the male audience, I suppose. So Yeah, that's the skeevy part. So I guess that gets us to our final two questions. The first one being um, how this movie holds up. Is Red Sonia a good movie? I mean, good? <laughs> yes. I I complained about this movie endlessly as it was going on because there are so many things that you can nitpick on, but I walked away from it saying that was a good 89 minutes. I had fun and I would watch this movie again in the future. And as far as I'm concerned, that is the definition of a good movie. I think I'm in the same, the same boat is that, yeah, there are elements of this movie that have not aged well and would not appear in a remake. I think that it really at the beginning, the beginning point is the point at which you could kind of slice that out and do something different with it and do it more of a straight revenge story the way that they do with Conan. Um, but when you make it sort of a rape revenge story that involves a gay panic attack and all that, it's just a lot of weird stuff like that that doesn't age well coming from 1985. Yeah. Um, that's the sort of stuff that you would put in like a gritty, ugly Game of Thrones Conan the Barbarian world, but not in sort of a Harryhausen, Clash of the Titans, Conan the Destroyer world. And those two things don't really work together in the same movie. So you can either make it a gritty, I spit on your grave rape revenge story where it is about her kind of pulling herself out of this traumatic experience and killing these motherfuckers. Or you can do sort of a fun sword and sandals, storming the castle, fighting a wizard, fighting a monster type of story. 
And I think it was primarily the latter, which makes the stuff at the beginning just feel weirdly uncomfortable, not just because of how social mores have changed, but because how the rest of the movie plays out. But I, I'd say for the most part, that rest of the movie plays out part is a lot of fun. I liked this more than Conan the Destroyer, and I liked Conan the Destroyer. I know it's not a good movie, and I've said this before, there's certain genres of movies that they're not, they don't have to be great art to be really fun, enjoyable examples of what they are. And mm. I think that sort of 80s sword and sandal movies, like 80s slasher movies, they can be so much fun to watch, and I'd never regret a second of watching it, though I would never defend it in like a film class. Um, <laughs> this is not something that anyone's going to write any peer reviewed papers on. Nobody's going to dissect this in, in a lot of really serious ways, or maybe they will, because I think one of the things I kind of love about nerd criticism nowadays is we've decided that things that were largely considered junk culture are worth talking about from a cultural standpoint. And, uh, maybe they can talk about the first five minutes of the movie being really <laughs> uncomfortable. Uh, but I liked it. I like it. I think the characters are fun. I think the sets look great. I think that um, this is a movie that I enjoyed. I never looked at my clock while watching it. So I'd say, yeah, I'd say, you know, maybe not objectively, but in all the ways that count, this is a good movie. Uh, like I said before, top half, bottom of the top half, I would say. It, 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 it just has to, I mean, it just has to be better than Conan the Destroyer, and I think it is. Um, it has to make the Arnold character makes sense for what Arnold is good at. And it does. Um, and it also has to have things about it that are strengths of the, of the particular genre. And I think we've said for lots of reasons, it does have those strengths. It's just, um, you know, maybe 10 years ago, you would have talked about derisively about what are Arnold's worst movies. And this would have been in the list of those worst movies. But like I said, now that we're in a different territory in post gubernatorial Arnold movies, is this uh, is kind of, this is sabotage our nine 11. We were in a different world. I think, I think the, uh, the rising tide of how bad, you know, it was a, the sabotage was like the, it was like a really heavy, incredibly heavy stone that fell into your pond. And now everything else in that pond gets raised up because of <laughs> sabotage. So yeah, Red Sonia, I'll give it a C plus. I think that's about what it deserves. I do also want to just add a quick shout out to Sandal Bergman, who oh, played yes. Queen Gedrin. She was apparently originally considered for the role of Sonya and turned it down to be the villain. Mm -hmm. And that was 100% the right call. It was. And she was, we, she, she was, was great as She it. was Valkyrie in the first Conan movie. So. Uh, Valeria. Valeria. What did I In think? Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. And she felt like the roles yeah. were too similar. Yeah, yeah, I think she had a lot more fun as Gedrin. Oh, being the bad guy is so much fun. Oh, you get to pose on a throne, you get to threaten people, you got to wield an all-powerful item, and you get to have an underling beg you to stop because you've <laughs> gone too far! <laughs> <laughs> That's just fun. Well, and, you know, she had the best costumes. Like, that spangly, like, black and gold sequin thing that she's wearing throughout the entire ending with the crown. Like, that is just a great costume. Oh, with, like, a, the Phantom of the Opera Man? to cover yeah. her scar yeah, yeah yeah that's a lot of fun oh so we get to our last question is red sonia a good arnold movie Ugh, i i i've got to say i think i said the same thing with with conan the destroyer is you get credit for having arnold having fun killing people in it but there is I don't know. It's on the line. It's writing the line for me. I can't, the thing that i can't articulate is i think arnold gets good moments where he's actually working through a character which the biggest thing the biggest misconception of arnold schwarzenegger is that he's not a good actor and he's he has roles that are just for people who are strong men and as he moves along further through the 80s you see that like he is getting to be a much better actor he's actually trying to do it and here i think he's doing something with the character i just red sonia gets the quips Red Sonia gets the to kill people that are the the bullies and then to have the awesome one liner and Arnold doesn't get to in this. Um and in that respect, he's Arnold, he's in this movie and doing things that Arnold should do. It doesn't feel like it though. It doesn't feel like an Arnold movie. I I would say yes. And the reason why, I mean aside from like the whole 
introductory introductory concept of Red Sonia, which they handle in a very PG way at the beginning, and like maybe five to ten seconds of breasts in a very non-sexual way. Like those things aside, this is a fairly kid-friendly movie. And given that Arnold is not the main character, whatever the billing might say, he is playing a supporting role. This is a movie that I watched and enjoyed throughout my childhood and that I would recommend for children today. And it got me interested in Arnold as an actor. I saw him in other things later and went, hey, it's that guy. And that made me more interested in him as an actor. Hmm. And so on that basis, I would say, yeah, this is fine. Hmm. I'd, I'd say so, too. I, I think the thing that I want with Arnold, I get with Arnold. I don't quite get catchphrases because, again, we are dealing with a lot of kind of proto-Arnold, beginning Arnold, where he hasn't quite figured out his screen persona yet. And, well, and this movie was not rewritten for Arnold as Arnold, right? No, Not no. like much later movies. No, he was just – he was it was written with him as a Conan sword and sandals guy, that they were kind of going forward with that idea. I think that's what Dino De Laurentiis thought they had on their hands when he was, in fact, something much bigger. And by the time this movie came out, he was a really starting to become a massive star. And – um but you see again something in him that you don't get with all those other muscle guys. It's just like you said before, you could swap out Dolph Lundgren with him, but there's an element that he has that Dolph Lundgren can't replicate. And you can start to see that being born here. And we said this before that Predator is really the movie where Arnold comes into his own. And that's only two years in the future from this. So we're really on the cusp of, of Arnold's stock hitting an all time high. But I want to talk about something we, we haven't talked about at all. And it's not that his amazing feats of strength where he keeps the castle up with his back or that he's lopping heads off. It's the costume that Arnold wears in this movie, which may in (laughs) fact be one of the greatest pieces of clothing that Arnold Schwarzenegger has ever worn in a movie. (laughs) And I'm comparing this to the braided yarn tunic from Conan the Barbarian. I'm comparing this to Mr. Freeze's bathrobe (laughs) as one of the greatest costumes. So Arnold's Lord Kalidor is wearing... I, I don't even know. How to, it's like a sleeveless burgundy jerkin <laughs> that is both studded with and embroidered with gold. It looks like a super macho version of Prince Adam from the He-Man yes, cartoon. It, yes, it does. He's got these like burgundy leather bracers on. He's got pants that are so tight that it looks like a flex could rip them off. <laughs> it's, I don't think they're spandex, but they, he's wearing them like spandex. In fact, this entire outfit uh, with the deep V neck that exposes his chest and is, you know, he's got suns out, guns out. <laughs> Everything about it looks like it was designed for him, but they thought he was smaller than he actually is. <laughs> well, and I don't know if it was just the overall tightness of the outfit or if it really is that large, but it's especially evident during the fight with Brytag that the codpiece on that thing is enormous. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. It's like distractingly large. <laughs> and it's, it's amazing because it also looks, at least the top part, looks like it's made out of crushed velvet. <laughs> so there's this angle of it where it looks like the sort of fantasy hero costume that you would wear on the cover of like a bodice ripping romance novel. Well, you're ignoring probably I think which which is the best piece of it, which is that he has like a headpiece that is like a male tiara of yes. the same of the same like gold gold bands and that kind of burgundy leather around his head, which makes him not that's the piece I think that makes him look the least like Conan. Yeah. It, it's there's something about it that is almost something that is more refined than Conan. He's really more on the Shira spectrum. Of he, is a, he is a Shira <laughs> character. Oh my god, he totally is, and it's amazing. <laughs> and I would say that this is this is a high point for Arnold clothing, and it's going to be a really hard time to top this in any movie. And I'd say it's neck and neck with the Mister Freeze bathrobe with the little uh, the polar bear slippers. <laughs> that that thing was amazing. Look it up. It's great. So. I, I've got to say that is a lot of fun to watch. This is this is a fun Arnold movie. It's not what Arnold would be if just a couple of years down the line he would probably have a lot more catchphrases. They would take more advantage of his accent. But I think that what we're going to see is that it stops being a thing that he's trying to overcome, and it becomes a thing that he just embraces pretty soon. So 
Uh, to buy a pension. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if, if people want to find out more stuff that you're doing online and they want to find out about view from the gutters, where should they look? Uh, so as always, of course, you can go to, uh, viewfromthegutters.com to see what we're working on. Both of our podcast projects, uh, view from the gutters comic book club and the house of Jack and Stan, which is a history of Marvel comics are on hiatus right now. Uh, but if there is new content that goes up in the future, it's going to show up there. Uh, you can also, uh, check me out at my own personal website. It's tobiah.panchin.net. Uh, and anything that I work on, including my, uh, book about role playing games, uh, you can find links to through there. Oh, excellent. Thanks again, Tobiah. We love having you on. Thanks thank for you guys here. for having me. This is a lot of fun. And we want to say a special thank you to our episode sponsors. We have 12 of them yes. now. We have a special thank you to Larry Brunswick, Margaret King, Tim Batson, Zuri Russell, Sterling Taylor, Tom the Belgian, Gus Lindgren, Mike Seibert, Jem Newman, Sinjin, David Gutierrez, and Calzone. So thank you guys so much for supporting us. And if you want to join those wonderful, wonderful people and become an episode sponsor, check us out on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians, or just check it out on our website. There's a link there on podcastalavistababy.com. We love you guys. We'll catch you all next month. Podcast La Vista Baby is a production of Radio vs. the Martians and is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Val Verde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music was written and performed by James Wetzel, with opening narration by Dan Lombardo. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Dan Lombardo. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And finally, you can find us online at podcastalavistababy.com and radioversusthemartians.com. I'm no mercenary. Nobody pays me. And if I think somebody owes me something, I take it.